Dr. Garland said rightly that someday you'll look back on your seminary years and think that they just flew by. I certainly think that my four years in seminary flew by, and I look back on them with great joy. You were supposed to laugh when I said four years. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, I stretched it out because I liked it so much. I'm honored to be named the Foy Valentine Professor of Theology and Ethics, and uh, I knew much about him, but just this morning I sat down and read through a lot more about him and learned some things that I didn't know. Uh, I don't think he and I are very much alike, actually, because he was kind of a curmudgeonly type, and I'm not like that at all. But I'm very proud to, uh, to have his name attached to my position because he was a courageous man. I learned this morning reading about him that in 1968, still in his 40s, he stood up on the floor of the Southern Baptist Convention, the annual meeting, and argued loudly, vociferously, that the Southern Baptist Convention needed to apologize for slavery. It took 20 more years before that happened, and he suffered some for for calling for that as early as 1968, but he was a courageous crusader for civil rights and many other things related to social ethics. My talk today is about confessions of an ecumenical, eclectic Baptist Christian. I can't claim the Baptist pedigree of the man who proudly identified himself as Baptist-born, Baptist-bred, and when I'm gone, I'll be Baptist-dead. Unlike him, and unlike many of my colleagues, past and present, I didn't grow up Baptist. I'm a convert. There are advantages to being a convert. For one thing, it's harder to take being Baptist for granted. You see, I chose it. Perhaps a Calvinist would say it chose me, but as an Arminian, I think I chose it. (laughs) When I first became Baptist, I was living in a religious ecology, as sociologists call it, that was somewhat hostile to Baptists. I grew up in the upper Midwest, where Baptists are a minority. In Minnesota, less than 3% identify as Baptist. But that didn't bother me. In fact, I felt kind of special. I felt sorry for Catholics and Lutherans who didn't stand out. After all, according to Dr. Seuss, our job isn't to fit in, but to stand out. That's especially true, I take it, of authentic Christians. Wherever they are, Christians should stand out. Then I moved to Texas the first time and noticed that here, as in much of the South, being Baptist can be a kind of default religious identity. That is, many people truly are born Baptist and Baptist-bred and don't stand out from the surrounding culture. I was struck by how easy it is to be a Baptist in Texas and the South, and I was shocked when I met people who seemed to be Baptist first and Christian second. If I sound critical, I'm only agreeing with my solidly Baptist professor of theology at Rice University, John Newport, who decried these facts of Baptist life in Texas and the South. Dr. Newport was about as Texas Baptist as anyone can get. Much to my chagrin, he left Rice to be provost at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth. I didn't get to study with him as much as I had hoped. But in seminars at Rice, he frequently commented on the odd combination of sectarianism and cultural accommodation among Texas Baptists and Southern Baptists in general. In other words, at least to outsiders and to some insiders like Dr. Newport, Baptist life in the South is marked by a paradox. On the one hand, many Baptists, perhaps the majority, tend to think they're the only real Christians 
And Southern Baptists tend to think they're the only real Baptists of the 26 varieties of Baptists in the United States. On the other hand, many Baptists, often the same ones, tend to think they are the creators and owners of the culture, except where it's departed from the tried and true ways of the past when Baptists really ran it. There's an old story about St. Peter giving newcomers a tour of heaven. When they come to a particular neighborhood of the heavenly city, the apostle and gatekeeper puts his finger to his lips and asks the newcomers to be quiet as they walk by this neighborhood. One of the newcomers asks why, and St. Peter is alleged to have said, this is where the Baptists live. They think they're the only ones here. (laughs) Of course, that's a caricature, but often non-Baptists get the impression from some of us that we think the kingdom of God belongs to us in some special way. They think it's ironic, of course, because they ask which Baptists are so special to God. After all, there are, as I said, 26 distinct denominations of Baptists in the United States alone. And some of them won't have anything to do with even other Baptists. Before becoming a Baptist, most of the Baptists I knew belonged to a large Baptist denomination in the upper Midwest called the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches. Because their church sign had the letters G-A-R-B-C on them, we called them garbage Baptists. (laughs) Although that wasn't nice at all, they kind of brought it on themselves by doing things like picketing Billy Graham evangelistic crusades. They considered Billy Graham and his associate evangelists liberals. So by now you might be wondering why I'm a Baptist. Why did I choose to identify with a Christian tradition so many non-Baptists misunderstand? or find good reasons to ridicule and criticize. Well, first you need to know I grew up Pentecostal, so I was used to it. And I was actually (laughs) proud of it. Before becoming Pentecostal was popular, we were persecuted. I remember being teased about being a holy roller when I was a student, sometimes by my Baptist schoolmates. We Pentecostals reveled in persecution because it made us feel special. We stood out, and that's what authentic Christians should do. Becoming a Baptist and being misunderstood then wasn't new to me. In fact, one of the reasons I became Baptist when I couldn't be Pentecostal anymore was because in that religious ecology, both were widely misunderstood and sometimes persecuted. But I chose carefully what kind of Baptist to become. I had at least 26 choices. Eventually, over the almost 40 years that I've been a Baptist, I belong to or affiliated with six Baptist groups, American Baptist, Southern Baptist, North American Baptist, Baptist General Conference, Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, and Baptist General Convention of Texas. I've enjoyed them all and learned much from each group. Yes, we Baptists have our faults, but I'd say our strengths outnumber them. I've never apologized for being Baptist. I've apologized for the behaviors of some Baptists, but never for the Baptist tradition itself. If asked why I'm a Baptist, I'd answer with Walter Rauschenbusch, who, in his famous essay, Why I Am a Baptist, wrote the following. The Christian faith, he wrote, as Baptists hold it, sets spiritual experience boldly to the front as the one great thing in religion. It aims at experiential religion. We are an evangelistic body. We summon all men to conscious repentance from sin, to conscious prayer for forgiveness. We ask a man, have you put your faith in Christ? Have you submitted your will to his will? Have you received the inward assurance that your sins are forgiven and that you are at peace with God? Have you made experience of God? If anyone desires to enter our churches, he wrote, we ask for evidence of such experience and we ask for nothing else. 
We do not ask the person to recite a creed or a catechism. The more simple and heartfelt the testimony is, the better we like it. If it's glib or wordy, we distrust it. Experience is our sole requisite for receiving baptism. It is fundamental to our church life. Rauschenbusch goes on in that essay to talk about the importance of correct doctrine, especially for ministers. But his emphasis throughout the essay is on experiential Christianity, including practical discipleship, a daily walk with Christ, ethical Christian living, especially in the social sphere, as things important to Baptists. Those are the reasons I became a Baptist, and they remain my reasons for being Baptist. The focus of my talk this morning, however, isn't about the glories of being Baptist. We get enough of that here and in our home churches and the colleges and universities many of us attended. What I want to tell you, though, is how my Christian life as a Baptist has been enriched by other Christian traditions. One thing that concerns me about many Baptists I meet in Texas and the South generally is a tendency to think the Baptist form of life is complete and cannot be enriched by others. Here at Truett, however, we have three required courses entitled Christian Texts and Traditions. Our curriculum reflects our conviction that every Christian tradition has something to contribute to us, even if we still believe being Baptist is best. I proudly identify myself as an eclectic and ecumenical Baptist. By that, I mean that my Baptist faith soaks in and is enriched by distinctives of other Christian traditions. That shouldn't shock anyone who knows Baptist history. The earliest Baptists were influenced by Mennonites and Congregational Puritans. History tells us that in the 18th century, many Baptist congregations in Great Britain and America were awakened by the Wesleyan revivals and by the preaching of George Whitfield, a Calvinist Methodist. Over the centuries, all Baptist groups and individuals have been influenced by other traditions. However, we Baptists still often live by the myth of Baptist completeness, which, unfortunately, can lead to complacency. When I first came to Truett in 1999, I was surprised and delighted to see a Catholic priest from a nearby parish hanging out among us. Father Timothy earned his doctoral degree at the Angelicum, a university in Rome, where he wrote a dissertation comparing Baptist and Catholic styles of leadership. Father Timothy even spoke in chapel at least once that I remember. And he spoke in many classes and still visits my sections of Christian texts and traditions, too, to answer questions about Catholic theology. Over the years, I've been enriched personally, theologically, and spiritually by many Catholic priests and theologians. When I was still Pentecostal, charismatic Catholics taught us much about God's presence throughout Christian history and about contemplative charismatic worship. We learn from them that true worship and devotional life doesn't have to be noisy. One of my earliest ecumenical experiences was when I was in eighth grade. A teacher at school assigned us to interview a community leader and write a paper based on that interview. Much to my parents' surprise and I suppose dismay, I chose the Catholic bishop. I knew where he lived, across the street from the cathedral, not far from our house. After a few phone calls, I got an appointment with him on a Saturday morning and pedaled my bicycle to his mansion. Needless to say, I was nervous. After all, I had been taught that Catholics were pagans who worshipped food. But I had Catholic friends at school who didn't really show that to be true, and I didn't believe it. The bishop was extremely gracious to me and gave me an hour during which he answered all of my questions and prayed with me. 
From then, I could, from then on, I could never think about Catholics the same. During my seminary years, I rubbed shoulders with a few Catholic students who were studying to become deacons in their church. I was surprised to learn that the Catholic Church allowed them to study toward the office of deacon in a Baptist seminary. Then, during my doctoral studies, I participated in Protestant Catholic dialogues. I read Catholic theologians such as Rahner and Kung, von Balthasar, Casper, and Tracy. I met Hans Kung and chauffeured him around Houston for two days. I've never been particularly attracted to joining the Catholic Church, but I have learned much from my Catholic friends, acquaintances, and theologians. To those who try to lure me in that direction, I reply that I grew up Pentecostal, and Baptist is as high church as I'm ever going to be. (laughs) However, from Catholics, I have learned much about the value of tradition. Baptists tend to be allergic to tradition. We like to think our form of Christian life is simply the New Testament church restored. Well, Pentecostals and Churches of Christ think the same about their form of life. We all have our own traditions. What Catholics have taught me is the difference between the great tradition of Christian belief and life and traditions that denominations have developed. I have gained from them a greater appreciation of the great tradition, including the church fathers, monks, medieval theologians, contemplatives and mystics, and yes, liberation theology, which is largely a Catholic phenomenon. The first girl I ever kissed was Greek Orthodox. So that influence affected me early and profoundly. (laughs) I didn't learn much about the Eastern Orthodox form of life or theology from her, however. When I was in high school, again, probably much to my parents' consternation, I read the book The Way of the Pilgrim and learned to pray the Jesus Prayer. That came to me through a strange medium. I absolutely hated Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger, which we were required to read in high school. For what reason, I don't know. But I found other books by Salinger that I liked, including Franny and Zoe and Raise High the Roofbeam Carpenters. The Way of the Pilgrim and the Jesus Prayer figures prominently in those books, and I was led to those by reading them. During my doctoral studies at Rice University, my historical theology professor was an Eastern Orthodox theologian. From him, I learned much about Orthodox Church fathers such as Chrysostom, Maximus, and John of Damascus, and I came to reject the Filioque Clause in the Nicene Creed. Throughout my three years in residence at Rice, I served as youth pastor and Christian education director at a Presbyterian church, where I often led part of the worship. It fell to me sometimes to lead the congregation in in reciting the Apostles' Creed and occasionally the Nicene Creed. When we came to the words, and the Son, referring to the procession of the Holy Spirit, I pretended to have to cough a little and skipped over it. Over my 30 years of teaching theology at three Christian universities, I have taken many classes in Eastern, uh, taken many of my classes in Eastern Orthodox churches for divine liturgy and invited many Orthodox priests into my classes. I've read Orthodox theologians such as Florovsky, Losky, and Jejulis. A few years ago, my article on the Orthodox doctrine of theosis, or deification, was published in a journal. That is perhaps the single main contribution of orthodoxy to my Baptist faith. Orthodox Christians ask Protestants, why just be forgiven when you can be transformed? Indeed, why? From them, I learned that God wants to share his own divine life with us, making us partial partakers of God's own immortal life and divine nature. 
We all believe that will happen in heaven. The Orthodox believe it can start now. And why not? I mentioned that I served for three years on a staff of a Presbyterian church. Well before that, I was already learning from Presbyterians. When I was a kid, we often visited my aunt and uncle who owned a farm in northeastern South Dakota. My Aunt Jeanette, my dad's oldest sister, was a Presbyterian elder. And she and my dad, who was a Pentecostal preacher, held long discussions, sometimes debates, about theology. Those were interesting discussions that I listened to with real interest, even as a kid. I'm sure my aunt never heard of Karl Barth, but she was a committed Calvinist who believed that God had elected everyone to be saved. Now, everyone knows I'm not a Calvinist, but I've learned much from Presbyterians and other Reformed Christians. Every year that I've taught theology, I've invited them to come to my classes to speak about the Calvinist view of God's sovereignty and especially election. I've read Reformed theologians such as Bart, Bruner, Burkauer, Burkhoff, Bettner, and Blesch. No, not all Calvinist theologians' last names begin with B, though. <laughs> From them and my Reformed speakers, I've learned to appreciate the sacramental life. We Baptists are often too allergic to sacramentalism but we fail to understand it and often revel in being anti-sacramental. Etymologically, the word sacrament comes from a Latin word that means act of commitment. Surely, baptism and the Lord's Supper are that to us. But even more importantly, we need to recover a sense of the real presence of Christ through the Holy Spirit in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. I say the Lord's Supper is a special means of grace, although not a means of special grace. There's a long and rich history of Baptist sacramentalism, and Presbyterian and Reformed Christians can help us recover it. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not arguing for transubstantiation or even consubstantiation. I don't believe we eat Christ in the Lord's Supper. Nevertheless, surely it is more than a mere symbol or just a memorial meal. It is a symbol and a memorial meal, but we err when we add mere or just to those terms. Christ can be spiritually present in symbols and memorials and has promised to be with us in special ways in baptism and the Lord's Supper. I've learned to appreciate and embrace a higher view of Christ's presence in the sacraments from my Reformed and Presbyterian friends and theologians. Every summer when I was a child, my parents took my brother and me with them to the West Des Moines Nazarene Camp Meeting, which was then the largest holiness gathering in the world. About a thousand people gathered under an open-sided tabernacle with sawdust on the ground beneath our feet for several nights in a row. Leading holiness preachers held the congregation spellbound from the pulpit, and famous gospel singing groups premiered the latest gospel songs. After the preaching, people rushed the altars to get saved and sanctified. My grandparents were Norwegian and Danish immigrants. In what they called the old countries, they were Lutheran. But when they reached the prairies of eastern South Dakota, there were no Lutheran churches in walking distance. The closest church to their farms was a church of God, Anderson, Indiana, a mission that had been taken over, taken over a little white clapboard Danish Lutheran church. There, in that holiness church, my grandparents, many of my aunts and uncles, got saved and sanctified. Well, honestly, remembering my grandfather pretty well, I'm not sure he ever got sanctified. The Church of God is a holiness denomination, like Nazarene. Like Wesley and the older Methodists, they believe in entire sanctification. We Baptists tend to emphasize conversion to the neglect, I fear, of sanctification. 
While I don't believe in sinless perfection, I do think it's an impossible ideal worth striving for with the help of the Holy Spirit, of course. Baptists tend to fall into a kind of Christian moralism after conversion. We're saved by grace, and then we struggle to maintain our relationship with God by learning and serving. But too often we miss the joy of Christian living that holiness and Pentecostal Christians know. We fear emotional spiritual experiences so much that we reduce our spiritual lives and worship to routines and good works. Theologian Stanley Hauerwas talks about the only evidence for the truth of Christianity is that God is busy among us. How do we know when God is busy among us? I would say it's when our worship and spiritual lives are filled with joy and when God is active in answering prayers, saving the lost, healing the sick, feeding the poor, housing the homeless, and breaking down our pride in self-sufficiency. I think we Baptists, perhaps especially those of us who call ourselves moderates, are so afraid of appearing fanatical that we eschew emotion and miracles and visible spiritual experiences. From holiness and Pentecostal Christians, we can learn that it's okay, even beautiful, to express ourselves emotionally in response to God's grace and to tell our stories of God's miraculous interventions in our lives. My Baptist faith has been enriched by some Christian traditions and communities you might not expect. I didn't expect it. I participated in and even led some dialogues between evangelical Christians and liberal Christians. From liberals like Paul Tillich, I've learned much about the importance of paying attention to culture and philosophy and making the Christian faith intelligible to modern people. Every year during my 15 years of teaching at Bethel College in St. Paul, I invited a fundamentalist theologian from Central Baptist Theological Seminary to speak to my classes about fundamentalism. While I had trouble appreciating his emphasis on separatism, which included not inviting me to speak to any of his classes when I offered, I learned from him and I've learned from other fundamentalists to appreciate concern for doctrinal correctness and biblical orthodoxy. What I've discovered in my interactions with other Christians is that all truth is God's truth wherever it may be found, and that no Christian group has a monopoly on truth or spiritual life. I've observed that too many Baptists define being Baptist by what we're not. We're not like Catholics. We're not like Churches of Christ. We're not like Pentecostals. We're not like Methodists. I have come to believe every Christian tradition has something of value to add to us, even if only to remind us of some aspect of our own tradition we've forgotten or neglected. From Anabaptists and Mennonites, we can learn about making peace and being ambassadors of Christ's peace to a world saturated with violence. From Episcopalians, we can learn about the importance of tolerance in a world of competing tribes, secular and religious. From Lutherans, we can learn to relax in God's grace and remember that faith alone saves and keeps us in God's favor. From the Salvation Army, we can learn the importance of ministry among the poor. From Quakers, friends, we can learn the value of silence in worship. From the so-called emerging church movement, we can learn about relevance to urban cultures. From the Amish, we can learn that true Christianity resists over-accommodation to modern culture. Yes, I'm proud to be a Baptist. If I had put bumper stickers on my car, which I don't, the first one would say, Baptist is beautiful, 
to counter the false impressions created by Fred Phelps and the folks from Westboro Baptist Church in Kansas. And one beautiful thing about being Baptist is the freedom to learn from other Christian traditions and be enriched by them. May you find it so as well. Thank you.